0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 319, Return of OREX, Part 3. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight and more. OSIRIS REx, or Origins, Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, and Security Regolith Explorer, has returned back to Earth. The spacecraft launched in 2016 to rendezvous with an asteroid called Bennu in 2018 so it can retrieve pieces of the asteroid with it on a trip and return them to our own home planet for study. After a successful landing in the Utah desert on September 24th this year, 2023, the sample was transported here to Houston, where we have specially designed facilities to keep them pristine. On October 11th, NASA revealed a first look of the sample, as well as some early discoveries to the world. Now, we've previewed this mission twice this year already, first setting the stage for its return and discussing Bennu and the interesting science with Mike Moreau and Nicole Lunning. Then we brought in Christopher Sneed and Mari Montoya to discuss the curation facility where the samples are currently housed, diving deeper into the prep here in Houston. On this episode, we round out the story of these samples with more of the scientists here in Houston who have been working with these unique samples. We're bringing in planetary scientists and OSIRIS-REx co-investigators Lindsay Keller and Ann Wynn from the Astromaterials Research and Exploration Science Division here at NASA's Johnson Space Center to walk us through the processes and emotions of working in the lab with these precious samples. Quick note that we had some activity happening in our studio, so you might hear some background noise in this episode. But trust me, I did not want to interrupt these folks. They had some amazing stuff to share. So let's get right into it. Enjoy.
1: T minus five seconds, County. Mark. Mission start. E zero. Moscow Midlifter. The the right. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast.
0: Lindsay and Ann, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. So happy to have you. Happy to be here wonderful to be here can't tell you how much i've been itching to have you both on the podcast we've had a couple of discussions on osiris rex not only this year but over the years and uh the sample reveal event that we had in october of this year was absolutely amazing i'm i'm still coasting off of the energy of that whole thing i'm sure you guys got to be a part of that as well Lindsay. what was your experience for the reveal event
2: it was fun. I mean, you know, uh, again, it's it's the, the fruition of a lot of work and effort and, you know, being able to go out and, and show the rest of the world, have my family tune in and everything else yeah. to the, the press release was fabulous. <laughs> and same thing?
1: Absolutely. It was just amazing to think that, you know, what you're seeing on the screen here is being, you know, broadcast to the next generation, you know? Yes not only to scientists, but you know, they had um school agers there asking oh, questions. That kids, was yeah. that was awesome to see. Yeah. And then just thinking that, you know, these samples that we're seeing here were on Bennu out in space, you know, not too long ago. Well kind of not too long ago. <laughs> A couple <laughs> of years. But, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. But so still nice. it's um yeah, I, I can understand that. And what's interesting is I can and I can't wait to get to this later in in this episode is you got to experience you know, working with these samples, seeing the samples, doing the science uh, of these samples that we revealed to the world as part of the October event. You got to do so ahead of time and have maybe more intimate moments than than this grand event that was that was very public. And I can't wait to get to it. But first of all, I just want to mention that both of you um, are, so well accomplished people, planetary scientists and Osiris-rex co-investigators. This is uh, you have wonderful accolades, and I want to get a sense of what led you to this particular role and working on these pristine samples. Lindsay, why don't we start with you? what What led you down the path of of wanting to pursue, wanting to become a planetary scientist and your entrance into working uh, as part of the Osiris-rex team?
2: A just a, a fascination with space, with rocks from space. I'm a, mm. I'm a mineralogist. I'm a geologist, mm. um, and I study things at the atomic scale. Uh, those are just wonderful samples to work on. They're exciting. They're different from terrestrial rocks in many ways. Um, and I started in graduate school uh, during my PhD, working on meteorites and things using electron microscopes to to study their tear them apart at that sort of scale. Mm. Uh, and have moved on ever since. Um, I arrived here in 2000 as a, a NASA civil servant, and then um, I was working on the Stardust mission, the, the mission that flew through a tail of a comet and collected the samples. I was a co-investigator on that mission as well. And I was brought in late in that because missions that NASA missions take so long from when they're conceived until they fly that they needed to add a younger generation of scientists to work on that mission. Oh. so I you know I was very fortunate to get added to that mission as part of the science team. Because of that experience, uh, almost sixteen years ago now, oh. uh, the p i of Osiris Rex, Michael Drake, at the time, he was a professor at the University of Arizona, uh, was looking to add science members to his team for his proposal effort. And based on our experience that we had done with Stardust, uh, we had impressed enough people, and we got asked to be invited to be on that team as well. So um, that went back to the first discovery proposal that was submitted for OSIRIS-REx. That didn't get selected, but the next two years later, submitted the New Frontiers proposal. That went through its process and got selected. So yeah, I've been on this mission since 2000. Six, basically.
0: Wow. So, yeah, having that history with this must have been extra special when you finally got those samples. Because well, you were
2: there at its inception. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like watching, you know, I, I think I, I told I was telling a friend, it's like watching your child grow up. Yeah. Right? You know, you see it from the conception all the way through to the end, which is what I missed with Stardust. You know, Stardust, I came in at the tail end. Right. Samples were coming back in six months, and away we ran with it, you know. And so, watching this all the way through the process is just Incredible! Uh, you realize what a ginormous team effort this is in terms of the thousands of people that make this happen. Mm-hmm. You know, we're sitting here right now, so excited about getting our samples and everything else. Right? And you have this 16-year effort. You know, to design the spacecraft, design the flight characteristics, design the sampling device, fly it, land it, bring it back. You know, and here finally now we get to have all the fun. But there's <laughs> all these this this legion of people that had to work so hard and they're so smart. And so it's just an amazing, amazing effort.
0: It's good to recognize that. I think as part of the reveal event that we did in October, we did a pretty good job of just bringing in all the different players. And and even then I feel like it was very apparent that even though there were a lot of people present, a lot of people who worked on this, uh, that it was still much much wider, much broader sweep than even, even we could possibly represent. It's uh, it truly does take a team. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's great to be talking with you Lindsay after, after working on it for so long. And I wonder what your experience is. planetary science, what got you in um, interested in planetary science and then eventually uh, as part of the OSIRIS-REx team?
1: Yeah. So I actually, as a kid wanted to be an astronaut and I was always interested in space. Um, and I didn't become an astronaut, but you know, missions like these allow me to kind of be that space explorer that I always wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, actually, in in college, I studied chemistry. I was going to be a pharmacist, but that didn't really quite pique my interest. I was like, you yeah, know, astronaut, pharmacist, and then mm-hmm. I, I started taking astronomy and astrophysics courses mm-hmm. and wanted to find a path that could combine those um two fields and then i found the field of cosmochemistry and particularly studying you know um, my first you know work with meteorites involved looking at chondrules, which are the first formed or one of the first formed solids in the solar system Mm. and then i found a graduate program at washington university where um They call it the fourth floor in physics, and they kind of pioneered the uh, field of studying pre-solar grains, which are grains that condensed around stars, you know, outside, beyond our solar system, way beyond our solar system, and they died, you know, billions of years ago, and these tiny grains kind of floated in space and got encapsulated into our molecular cloud, and they're found in primitive asteroidal materials and uh, cometary materials, and so that's how I kind of uh, got involved with studying these hand samples mm. and interested in studying meteorites. Um, so I've been at NASA since 2008, um, but I came on as a civil servant in 2020. And uh, mm. so my involvement in the mission came a little or um, later than Lindsay uh, formally came on board in 2019. Mm. So I was kind of on the tail end of that, but, you know, they brought me on, you um, or kind of my expertise in studying presolar grains and primitive organics and early solar system materials. So um, you know our team is made up of you know 200 plus scientists and it's great to see, you know everyone has a different background and interest and their particular thing they want to study, like I'm really interested in pre-solar grains. Others are interested in calcites or you know altered materials. But having all of us come together and putting those pieces together um, really makes it fun. Hmm.
0: So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different angles. And I think that's, that's a theme that we can get to when, when we start really diving into the samples. There's, it's not just... Space rocks. There's a lot of different, very interesting angles that you can take, scientific angles that you can take to investigating these. And I I, I say this a lot when we talk about astro materials on the podcast: is rocks are stories. And I'm sure you guys uh, talk about that a lot. It's I I think that's one of the most fascinating things about uh, the area that you guys uh, are in um, is is just. It's not just rocks. It's, you are looking at the story of the solar system, the story of formation, the story of the universe. It's, it's quite fascinating.
2: Well, I mean, if you look at the sample analysis plan that the mission has presented, right, it's not so much characterizing the—it is characterizing the rocks and such. But we have a series of themes, sort of fundamental science questions that we're trying to address starting from, you know, the the building blocks of the solar system that formed around other stars in the molecular cloud, how those come together to form an object. Mm. You know, how did that those then become altered to what we see today? You know, Bennu is a rubble pile. It was disintegrated in an impact. There's, you know, we have 10 or 12 sort of working hypotheses that we're testing with the entire sample analysis plan. You mm-hmm. know, so it, it is very oriented to solving sort of big, Picture questions about you know our origins and other origins. Fantastic.
0: Going back to your story for just a second, um, and is uh, I thought I thought your your arc of how you got to be a part of this mission was particularly fascinating. You wanted to be an astronaut and try different ways and, and different paths, and it was it was an interesting one. But I think there are there are a couple key elements here is your interest in space your interest with, with being an astronaut and your interest in space because naturally you, even though you considered pharmaceuticals you ended up going the space route but i wonder why chemistry chemistry can be very challenging and mm-hmm. and whether it was the chemistry of pharmaceuticals or the chemistry of the makeup of different different elements of the solar system of, of in space that was something that you were interested in and i wonder why
1: yeah so you know i was going to pursue pharmacy I got a job, oh, you did, with a pharmacist um, as an assistant. And I just knew that wasn't for me. I see. And I really wanted to do research. I think in college is where I learned that I really like research. Mm. And so I thought, um, well, then pharmacology, you know, researching drugs and pharmaceuticals. And that's why I started into chemistry. But that took me down another path. It was really when I took that astronomy class, you know, astronomy one hundred and one, and that just sparked that love mm-hmm. from my childhood. I was mm-hmm. like, "This is this is me. This is where I need to be." <laughs> and then, um, you know, taking astrophysics and just combining all those things was, um, yeah, I kind of found my home there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, as uh, as getting my degree, which is a business, um, mm-hmm. you have to take a natural science electives, a certain yeah. set of them. And it can be anything. A lot of the business folks ter- took like energy, oil and gas sorts of uh, electives. I had to take three courses and every single one, I took astronomy. Mm -hmm. I took astronomy 101. I'm like, "Eh, let's see where this goes. And then maybe I can take the energy one. But it was the same exact experience. I got locked in. I was like, this is fascinating. And so I took black holes. I took astrobiology. I took a a bunch of follow-up courses that were just, I mean, it just locks you in.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, when I took astrophysics, I, you know, I thought maybe modeling of evolution of stars, but then modeling wasn't for me either, <laughs> so <laughs> it, just, it just came yeah, back to research. research. I love the yeah. chemistry labs; that was my favorite thing to do.
2: Cool. You no, know, I kind of resonate with your story because I started. I was an architecture major. Oh, really? And I took I had to take a science elective, and I couldn't get into a computer science class, so I took a geology class. Oh. This is a floating <laughs> natural science class. Yeah, yeah, six months later, I changed my major, and the rest is history. You know, it's just, it's, and it, apparently, there's a high statistic of number of, like, freshmen that do exactly that. Really? You don't really know. I mean, like, 70% of freshmen come in not really knowing what they want to do, and it's like, 70% change majors in, like, that, that first year.
0: It's a good program, then, if, yeah, if, if it's if it's so intriguing. Yeah, very fascinating. Um, now, we're going to get into OSIRIS-REx. I want to lead to the sample reveal. I wanted, this is part three. Uh, we're doing a, a little mini-series of, of the story of Osiris Rex, which we have a couple of podcasts, uh, a couple of episodes over years. But just to recap, um, because you guys have been mentioning different... Uh, we, we, we talked briefly on the different angles that you can t- observe these samples and uh, the different perspectives that can be taken. But high level, Lindsay, I think we'll go to you just because you've been with uh, Osiris Rex for so long, is you know, even at its early stages, we were looking at Bennu, I think, right? And so what was interesting, like 16 years ago, um, particularly with this asteroid?
2: Well, I mean, there's a ex- very extensive uh, selection process to get us to going to Bennu, mm. you know? Um, and that was trying to understand a very primitive kind of asteroidal material, asteroid material that we thought would be very organic rich where, you know, we're looking for precursors to biotic life sort of things, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the building blocks, things, sort of things. And there's a, and then you have to factor that into how you get to it and bring samples back. So it has to be in something that's in an earth crossing orbit. Um, it has to be a near earth object. Um, and that winnows down the possible candidates incredibly much. And I, I think it was shown during the, the, the big press reveal event, the selection process, it was like this big pyramid, you know, where you have hundreds of thousands of asteroids and you keep winnowing this down in terms of the characteristics that allow you to go there, bring it back,
1: hmm. and have
2: something that's really interesting to look at in the laboratory. So,
0: Yeah, logistics, I think, was is what you're saying is a decent consideration. Not only does the asteroid have to be interesting and have interesting aspects to it, but we wanted to get there and bring stuff back just within a couple of years and maybe not decades. So... That was, that was part of the reason.
2: Um, And and these are all low cost missions, right? So you're flying mm -hmm. solar powered, you're not flying a nuke, you know? Um, And so you have those considerations. It still took, you know, seven years, Mm -hmm. right? To, you know, fly this mission from launch till we got samples back. Mm -hmm. So
0: So, um, from a, and maybe from a, a chemistry standpoint or just maybe even high level, uh, when, when we think about Bennu, we think about this as a carbonaceous asteroid. What is what is particularly interesting about this particular
2: asteroid?
1: Um, so we, we always want to know, right, where did we come from? Mm. How did we, how did life start on Earth? And so I think that was one of the main reasons was to get a carbonaceous asteroid and Bennu, you know, from spectroscopy, um, fit that kind of criteria
2: Hmm.
1: and you know we don't really know where light came from but you know organics matter and volatiles water you know came to earth somehow because earth is so close to the sun you know these volatile materials would have just evaporated they wouldn't have been um found in the rocks on earth for instance So, what was the vessel that brought it here? And, you know, one of the hypotheses is it could have been an asteroid like Bennu that, you know, crashed into the Earth and delivered
0: it. it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm. So, Bennu is a rubble pile. So, and if, and you see the cratering on our moon. So, the solar system is, you know, we think of it as static as planets nicely moving around in its own little path, but it can be very violent as well. Mm. And sometimes those. You know, craters create life and sometimes they extinguish it, like for the uh, dinosaurs. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's just, um, you know, Bennu is probably, you know, one of the keys of learning more about our history.
2: Mm. I, w- I would add that, you know, one thing that's so great about this sample, you know, is we have lots of meteorites on Earth. We go to Anna, NASA sends teams to Antarctica to collect meteorites off the ice almost every year. Um, So we have tens of thousands of meteorite specimens in museums all over earth, but those rocks came in from space. So there's a selection bias in terms of what can survive atmospheric entry. Mm. Then it sits on earth. And these things are full of organic molecules that bugs and bacteria love to eat. So Mm. pretty much every meteorite on earth is contaminated in some way or another by earth-based organisms. So going to the asteroid, grabbing a chunk, keeping it isolated from terrestrial atmosphere and interactions, it's in a curation glove box under dry nitrogen, keeping it dry, keeping it organically clean, um, is one of the first NASA samples ever where we can actually do this inventory of incredibly volatile organics you know the the full suite of things and we know it's indigenous to the rock it didn't come from earth you know it's it's not contaminated
0: from a scientific perspective maybe help me to understand the difference between the the breadth of additional science that can be done with a pristine sample like osiris rex versus some of the meteorites that we find here on earth whether it be antarctica what, what's the what's the additional capacity for science that's allowed by a pristine sample
1: um just in terms of the contamination part you know mm-hmm. you know kind of like what Lindsay said is you may find something really interesting organically but it's sometimes hard to tell whether that's indigenous to the sample itself or whether it came from being here on earth and just like weathering aspect and even you know as a meteorite coming through the atmosphere to reach the ground you know it's going to get heated it's going to get altered to some extent Um, and that's the other thing is that our meteorite samples that we find are probably biased um, because they have to be hardy enough strong enough to resist you know that heating and going through the atmosphere Um, so fragile samples Possibly, you know, the Bennu samples may not have survived coming through. And certainly not the, you know, the dust particles that we found, you know, to reach
2: okay, Earth. Yeah, it, it's, in addition, it's not just the Earth entry sort of aspects of it. It has to survive being launched and broken off of an asteroid to become something that's mm-hmm. going to get launched towards Earth to begin with. Mm. And that usually mm-hmm. ends up being something maybe more deep-seated. One of the really great things about the OSIRIS-REx samples is there are surface samples. We explore the asteroid belt, not by sending a zillion missions to it. We use telescopes and, you know, you know the James Webb, we, we look at asteroid surfaces, we measure how the light's reflected, and that's how we classify them and understand their mineralogy. So for the first, you know, one of the first times where we actually have direct surface samples that were exposed to space is what we see in telescopes as opposed to something that's deep-seated, you know, we're trying to use the OSIRIS-REx samples now, not just to learn about Bennu, but to learn about a whole suite of asteroids in the asteroid belt that have similar-looking spectral properties that we measure uh, mm. telescopically. So, you know, it's all rex samples are going to be sort of this gift that keeps on giving, because it's going to really allow us... We call it ground truth. You know, we suspect, based on these sort of spectral measurements, what we think the mineralogy and the composition of this asteroid is, all right? Now we brought samples back. We can tear it apart down to the atomic scale and tell you exactly what it is and say, how good is the the spectral interpretations as opposed to what we actually see when we analyze the sample? And now you can use that kind of interpretation to look at other dark, organic, rich asteroids Wow! and, and say something about, you know, their mineralogy more precisely, you yeah. know, so yeah. it's... Um, the, the, the having hand samples of, of materials, you know, whether it be the moon, I mean, or any of these bodies basically revolutionizes what we know about them. Yeah. You know, cause it's just, there's just so much more data, so much more information.
1: Yeah. We kind of got a taste of that when, you know, the spacecraft arrived at Bennu and it was completely rocky and, Gosh, oh my God, and what huge <laughs> boulders because, you know, from spectroscopy or, you know, and, and telescopic, uh, visuals of venue, they are like oh it's it's gonna be like a sandy beach so you know we, it'll be easy to come down and get the sample but when they were presented with the giant boulders yeah.
2: it, there, was, like, yeah, it was like yeah there's, a, there's early a animation of the tag event you know these little animations a little spacecraft coming down yeah and it's like a desert sand dune and it's this nice smooth surface and it's all happy <laughs> the tag sam comes down and you suck up the sample and away you go you know and then <laughs> You know the that that the, the close approach in october you know when when you first arrived at the asteroid and it's like oh my god yeah. you know <laughs> it's like you know there was there was concerns like are we going to be able to sample anything mm-hmm. you know there's oh. there's is there fine stuff here i mean the entire surface is covered in boulders you know the original plan was to have this big ellipse like we just had to be able to autonomously land within this i forget how big it was initially and realized that once we got there and we spent our our campaign around the asteroid to image it there aren't any spaces that are that big and so the nav team had to go back in work really hard on this autonomous navigation thing this natural feature tracking system that came up to basically land us within a 10 meter crater instead of a 50 meter crater you know mm. that didn't exist and avoid these giant school bus sized rocks you know that would destroy <laughs> the spacecraft kind of thing so
1: yeah and being on the science side and not the engineering side, and not understanding, you know, that, but seeing what they were able to do (laughs) once they saw what they were, you know, faced with, I was... I had a respect for them. It, was like, it goes back or, to
0: Lindsay's comment about the the big team, right? Yeah, yeah You're yeah. thinking about it. Where I'm talking to the planetary scientists here, and, and we're going to dive deep into that. But the engineering alone that was needed to to come up with solutions to to narrow down that 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 sample site
2: mm-hmm. is have,
0: fascinating enough. They're yeah. the
2: reason we're here to talk to you about the samples. <laughs> yeah, otherwise, so yeah, had to be step one.
0: Yeah, we talked uh, this. This it was a. Quite a journey, this one. Uh, this one, and not just in terms of distance, but moments like that, right? Mm-hmm. Where where you have to come up with solutions, and you're like, "Man, am I going to get my sample? I, I want to yep. do my science." Uh, zooming ahead to the uh, samples return. I wonder uh, what where you guys were during that moment. And this is on September 24th of this year, 2023. Um, Lindsay, let's go to you. Where were you during OSIRIS-REx capsules return to earth? What was going on? What were your th- thoughts, feelings, emotions? I had
2: the TV on at 8 a.m. And I was here. I was- um, In Houston, okay. I was here in Houston. Um, I got to be at the Utah test and training range for the Stardust entry. Okay. Back in the day. So I felt like, okay, I had my experience. It's time to let, you know, a younger generation have that ex- experience as well. Right. Um, so I watched it on TV and with my family and yeah, sweating bullets. Right. You know? <laughs> Cause you know, it's, it's coming in and I'm going, yeah. you know, my, my, my family and my daughter and my, my wife are like, um, there's supposed to be a parachute. Yeah, I know there's supposed to be a parachute. There's supposed to be a shoot. There's a shoot. Yay! Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> all right, you know, we're we're gonna we're alive, we're gonna make it, it's yeah. all great. You know, because you know, we've lived through the Genesis crash, you know, back right. in two thousand four or five, so whenever that was. Um, you know, we had that fear during during Stardust, you know, mm-hmm. that it was built by the same team, whether this gravity sensing switch was upside down there too. It drogue shoot came out and it's like it's, everybody's like
0: Big sigh of relief, yeah.
2: But, yeah. No, it was just, you know, and just happy for all my friends, my friends and my coworkers who were out there, you know, <laughs> um, and just this perfect landing, this plunk, you know. Stardust came in and it was windy. It rolled and rolled and rolled. There's It made all these cookies out in the the salt, you know, flats. Yeah. This thing is plunk.
0: It did. It looked perfectly <laughs> upright. It looked like it hit a target. Yeah, it yeah. was, yeah. <laughs> very cool. It was very
2: cool. <laughs> was extraordinary.
0: Um, yeah, and your experience.
1: Um, I was also in Houston uh, watching with bated breath. (laughs) And just, I was very nervous for the people in Utah. And I was actually happy I wasn't there because. Really? Just because of the nerves. I was like, I don't know if I could take it. Um, Mm. So watching from the safety of my house (laughs) um, with my kids. And uh, it was amazing to see, you know, I told you I wanted to be an astronaut. I remember, you know, as a kid in school watching rocket launches. It, you know, during class with my classmates and it kind of took me back to that, you know, that feeling of we're making great strides here. You know, this is fantastic. Yeah. Um, And, you know, my kids were excited too. They're probably a little too young to really understand how exciting this is. But, you know, I just couldn't help but think about the next generation of scientists and maybe they would, you know, come to analyze these samples in the future too. That would be really cool. But
0: Wow. Yeah, you were thinking way ahead. You were thinking what a big deal this was. Yeah, I just couldn't, kind of, I is, couldn't right? help but
1: think like back to my childhood and then where their path may lead them. And, you know, these samples um, are here for us to study now, but so much of it is going to be kept for future generations. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of really what excites me the most is just seeing um, or imagining what may come of the samples in the future? What, what's, you know, what are people going to learn?
0: Yeah. I got a taste of this when I was talking with some of your colleagues, at, oh, at least over in building 31 with the curation facility on opening the Apollo samples. You yeah. know, why, why preserve something for 50 mm-hmm. years? Well, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what fantastic yeah. instruments are going to come. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, and that's part of the wonderful science. Um, now, of course, this, uh, this we, you mentioned it landed in Utah, uh, this, this sample canister. It was then transported to Houston. Um, what was your experience for the first time that you actually walked into the lab and got to be close to the samples? Of course, you're not in the curation team. You're on the science team. But what was your first experience, Anne, with the sample?
1: So, um, Lindsay had earlier experiences okay. with the sample, but uh, we have, as a, we're both working group, or you're a lead, I'm a deputy lead of a, a working group, and so a big part of our job is to communicate to our team, so I'm deputy lead of the Elements and Isotopes working group, and so I, along with the lead, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, they're, Distributed across the globe. So it's kind of our job to communicate, you know, what the sample looks like and also, well, communicate to them, but also communicate their needs and what they want, what their interests are in the sample, and to try to come up with a plan to uh, best allocate the samples and get what they need and want to do their analyses.
0: They, meaning the researchers around the world. Okay. Mm
1: -hmm. And so my first. Um, close encounter with the sample was during that um, phase of having the leads go into the clean room to see the sample, and <laughs> it was incredible.
0: These are these are researchers who cannot wait to have their hands on the sample, and mm-hmm. you are guiding them close to this thing that they are going to observe. Yes, what, I felt- what was their reaction?
1: Um, so I communicated, so they, we were able to see uh, through a feed, um, the sample, um, you know, in in the lab,
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, as the curators were working on them, but, and that was exciting in itself, but actually being close to the sample was just another level I see. of excitement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it did look different, you know, up in close in person. It was kind of like, there are these small little speckles of like salt, except they're, you know, diamonds, because they sparkle. And that's something that couldn't really be captured um, through teams.
0: Yeah, and diamonds, I think, is a good analogy, especially with being a scientist. This is pretty much that precious to you, right? They're as precious as as diamonds. Lindsay, I wonder what your experience was like.
2: Um, I was really fortunate. I got to go in with the PI at the point where the— science canister was opened up and it exposed the tag sam for the first time. All right. Wow. So the tag sam sitting on the avionics deck, you know, where the capture ring is, you know, what you know, the last time I saw it was in space when the tag sam arm went plunked it down this into the, the capture ring and detached it. Yes. And you know, and then the SRC closed up. Um and there was a a, a pile of dust and granules. Uh, along the edge of the, the flange that that sealed the SRC and the sam itself covered in dust. You know, the interior of the SRC covered in dust, you know, and, you know, I, I'm there with the PI and we're just, we're giddy, you know, <laughs> yep. because it's like, you know, you know, it wasn't that like we, we know we have sample and we have oh, yeah. oodles of sample and we have this material on the avionics deck um, that we collected very quickly. I mean, this was the day after my birthday. It was great. <laughs> wow, what a present. Like the 28th. It was the 28th <laughs> of September. I remember it well. Um, it was your 28th birthday, right? Yeah, yeah as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. I was hoping they would open it on my birthday, but it had to wait a day because oh. they're, anyways. You know, um, but no, and then that material, um, the curation staff scooped up like 100 milligrams of this stuff. Is the mm-hmm. fine powder and some of the sandy granules. And I'm part of a, a group that we call we call the Quick Look, this Quick Look Tiger Team. Um, mm. And it was something we had practiced many times uh, previous uh, before the samples came back. But the idea is that we would do a bunch of uh, sort of non-destructive analyses as much as possible to give the science team an idea, you know, did we get what we thought we were gonna get, right? right. You know so we did some sem work you know some scanning electron microscopy work to look at the nature of the sample and some of the chemistry we did infrared spectroscopy to understand what minerals were present and what volatiles were there uh, some x-ray diffraction to figure out the the minerals that were present in the sample we did this in like three days we had a three-day window of opportunity to do all this wow. and then generate a report for the science team and so we briefed the science team briefed the curation folks just to give everybody an idea of you know, what to expect, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was wonderful that some of the very first analyses of OREX material happened over here in building 31 uh, on our instruments and things. It was
0: Can you tell me more, more about that process of, so you have these samples and you have these instruments. Uh, you have to carefully handle these samples, right? Oh, yeah. To put them into the different instruments. How does that work? Cause right. You, you, there was so much work to get it just into this sealed nitrogen purge yeah. container, right? So how do you. A hundred
2: milligrams isn't much material. Uh-huh. You know, you'll think of like a quarter teaspoon sitting on a glass slide, you know, uh. and, and using combination of, you know, very fine tweezers and then uh, needles to actually pick up individual particles and place them on the sort of sample supports that the instruments utilize. Um, so we, we prepped all those samples that way, you know, largely. Yeah. I, I did a lot of the small particle handling It's it's what I do. I, I work on really tiny, small particles. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have a, a group that's very good at that sort of work. Part of the reason I was on that team, you know, um, plus I manage a lot of the labs and the facilities where we did all those analyses and We have a a nice dedicated group of of scientists that helped out with all those measurements to help prepare that report for the, for the PI and for the rest of the science team. So, um, and we largely confirmed what we, in some ways, there were no surprises, let's put it that way. Mm. You know, we anticipated, we, you know, we we knew from the sort of the, the orbital phase of the mission that we had some idea what minerals to expect and things. Um, and, and so, yeah, it was, it was good to verify that, that we weren't going to have any strange surprises, that we didn't have to warn curation about anything weird going on in the sample, you know, so.
0: From a scientific perspective, was that, I mean, just, it, it was what we expected. Is that kind of exciting in a way, that it's, there are no surprises, or, or maybe relieving is the better word?
2: Well, at that level of detail, let's just say there's no surprises. There, there's going to be surprises, you okay. know, and surprises. And we already know there are surprises. I can't really talk about them right now yeah, because ooh. they're they're still embargoed in things because nice. we haven't published anything yet. Okay, um, but just at the grossest high level, you know, we, we expected to see hydrated minerals. We expected to see minerals like carbonates. We expected to see um, sort of carbon rich material, you mm-hmm. know, organic rich material. Um, and what else am I missing? Anyway, With, yeah.
1: It's kind of a confirmation of what was seen from the spacecraft as it was orbiting around Bennu and studying it. Right.
0: Which is good, right? Because yeah. we, we were talking yeah. about how this informs even observations from other instruments and observatories, and, and but knowing that, that the instruments we have to observe and make predictions actually works out. That's That's got to be huge just in and of itself for further yeah.
2: observations. Make sure it's not contaminated. Make right. sure mm-hmm. there's nothing that's dehydrating, that's sublimating, that, you know, you know, are there, are there interesting volatiles that we're losing because we weren't aware that they were actually there in the sample. So no, it was, uh, very high pressure and, uh, very intense couple days in the laboratories.
0: Were they long days?
2: Oh yeah. (laughs) Although, I mean, the mission's been really, really good in terms of not overworking people,
1: Mm.
2: you know, if you let half those people in curation and half the scientists, they'd work 12, 16, 20 hour days, (laughs) you know, they'd love to. Um, And you almost have to hold them back because Mm -hmm. it's, it is intense. I mean, we're the, the curation folks are being sort of limited to four hour shifts and even that's a lot, you Mm -hmm. know, I was in the clean room four or five times during the, this initial phase for the last month and a half Mm -hmm. and just being in there for an hour, you know, it's you're, you're fully suited up in a, a bunny suit, you mm-hmm. know, with masks and everything else. And yeah, it, it's kind of exhausting, you know. And that's just spectating, you know. I'm watching people do the hard stuff. Manipulating the you know? sample like through the, curators, the gloves, right? Yeah. Through these giant big rubber yep. gloves and trying to do these very delicate things like, mm-hmm. you know, picking individual particles off of part of the capture ring and putting it into a, a slide, yeah. you know, is. The, the dexterity and the, the skill set of the, the folks up in curation, you know, yep. hats off. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, I do a lot of that in my laboratory without big giant rubber gloves, and I appreciate how that's done. <laughs> yeah. It is, it, it is remarkable.
0: In the last OREX episode, we got to talk to Mari Montoya about her zen-like state to <laughs> uh, to be able to go into that and, and handle those samples.
2: Yeah, well, she and Christopher were, when I was up in the clean room, it was like I was spectating because uh, – We'll talk about it later. The contact pads that are in the tag, Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the, some of the practice sessions, you know, if somebody would drop a tweezers and you'd go, <gasps> you know, and <laughs> right, and and both Christopher and Mari were going, like, just sit there, be calm, shut up. You know, it's All like we right. don't need the <laughs> audience participation here, you know, making things that much worse. You know, if somebody drops something, don't say yeah. anything, everyone just like totally zen, you know, right. It's, um,
0: so wait, so as they're, they're doing the curating, you are still part- actively participating in Watching. a monitoring. So what's your role throughout those hours? What do you actually, when you monitor, are you documenting different things? Are you like, what, what, is, your, what is your focus during those hours that you sit down?
2: Well, I mean, in my case, I'm the lead on the, the so the TAGSAM, the, the OREX mission, basically collected two kinds of samples. Mm. Um, it, you know, the big sample that is sort of hoovered up and sucked off the surface of Bennu, right? You know, mm-hmm. that's the the big bulk sample. Mm-hmm. But on the bottom plate of the tag sam head, there's what we're calling contact pads. And they're made out of stainless steel Velcro loops. And the idea was that this would be a sampling of the material absolutely on the surface of Bennu. And it's for the reason we talked about earlier. Like, you want to be able to understand what was absolutely on the surface, because that's what we see by telescopes. That's what we saw by the spectrometers and the cameras that are on the orbiting spacecraft and things. So that's our ground truth sort of thing. Hmm. So my part of the the this curation experience was, you know, once they had gotten the tag sam off the capture ring and flipped it so we could see those contact pads, you know, then it's like, okay, how much material did we get? You know, are they are they jam packed with stuff? Are they empty? Did it work? Did it not work? You know, we're doing that sort of evaluation with the PI.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: You okay. Know? So that was, that was, you know, um, uh, it was largely an observe and comment. And the same thing what Anne was saying, you know, we were feeding that sort of information to uh, a team that was feeding it then to the rest of the science team. And there it was, you know, go. Everybody's, you know, everybody's watching that feed, the video feed out of the clean room. Mm-hmm. And then you have this running commentary over what's happening and what people are doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. You know?
0: And it helps you to inform the scientific audience. Yeah. It helps you to maybe make some decisions down the road. Yeah, absolutely. To, yeah.
1: Yeah. That's part of our job in a way is looking at the sample and kind of from a visual standpoint, you know, seeing um, possibly how many different types of rocks are in there and then telling our working group, you know, those characteristics and having them to help us in making a decision of which you know samples would be best for achieving our goals and answering the the working hypotheses that we have for the mission.
2: Mm. There's been this fascinating progression. I love this. You know, we open up the SRC and we see dust, and we're so excited. And the mm-hmm. sample analysis team is like, everyone's excited. You know, we got these granules and things. We have this dust, all right. And then we flip over the tag sam head. And oh my God, there's sample, there's sample sitting on this Mylar flat. You know, <laughs> there's like 10 there. grams. There's actually rocks, they're as big yeah. as a centimeter. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then the curation team started scooping it out, right? And we ended up with like 70 grams and they there in these little aluminum pizza trays, you know, and we have all these images, and everyone's going, Oh my God, <laughs> we've got these giant boulders. Now. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, it was hilarious watching the progression from getting excited about dust to getting excited mm-hmm. about sand, getting excited about gravel, and then finally, Oh my God, we have big rocks, you know? And just.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it was the images of the. When they flipped it over and seeing the rocks, which are really centimeter size, but right. looking at those images was very reminiscent of images of Bennu. You know the asteroid itself, but on a different scale. Oh, so it was people did that.
2: Really people amazing. took some of the orbital images, and, yeah, you know, okay. of, of like the boulder-strewn surface of Bennu, mm-hmm. and superimposed it next to like a blown-up image of the rock sitting in the the tag and you're like going, okay, which one's which? Yeah, you know, it was it was very cool. Oh, and, okay, yeah, because um, part of the part of doing good science is really
0: understanding where, which, which part of the, of Bennu each of these samples came from. And that's this is part of the process, right? The curation process. And, and, and this is where the curation team works very closely with you guys, who works very closely with the scientists, is trying to communicate and best make sure that these samples are curated and organized and labeled as accurately as possible. This is where that dance is.
2: No, we have a, we have a wonderful relationship with our curation colleagues. Yeah, you know we live, work, play with them, and socialize with them. Uh, <laughs> it really is a, a wonderful symbiotic relationship and a real team effort uh, going on over there right now.
0: So leading up, so the, the quick analysis, right, where you had those three intense days of you know measurements, 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 and, and trying to get that. At the at the end of that, you were you were one of the scientists, Lindsay, that was first exposed to some of those quick look things that we revealed to the world, and you got to see them and understand them and characterize them for us, the communicators, to be able to li- to deliver to uh, externally. Um, you know, after, you said, 16 years of, of being with the Bennu and seeing this quick look, a first understanding of many to come with many researches and many more. This is step number one. What was that like after that three days?
2: Well, it was intense, right? I mean, we had running bets over what we brought back, right? <laughs> you know, everybody does this, right? You're like, what do you think we're going to get? You yeah, know, sure, you sure. Know, we have a, it's an international team. We have Japanese colleagues that uh, were on the Haibusa 2 mission. Mm-hmm. You were a- Anne was a participating scientist Mm -hmm. on that mission. She had good experience with that, you know, and we were having these running debates, you know, I was like, well, is it going to be different from ours? Or is it going to be the same as ours? You know, and we'd have these running, running commentary. Um, And it was just interesting. We keep, we keep looking for things, you know, like, okay, do we see these, what Anne talked about, these very early sort of, chunks of molten glass that we see in commonly other kinds of meteorites, these things called chondrules, our CAIs and things, and we're not seeing them, you know, and that's a bit of a surprise, right? Um, And, you know, realizing what a a, a incredibly complex sort of fine-grained assemblage of things that we have, um, you know, and realizing that we're just scratching the surface you know um uh, we're just getting the barest glimmer glimpse of what's in these samples um.
0: there it is just mm-hmm. that's that's it just understanding that this is just the beginning of, oh, yeah. of understanding yeah that has got to be so exciting
1: <laughs> yeah part of our nature is you know when we first look at the sample we try to relate it to other samples that we've seen before mm-hmm. like our meteorite samples for instance like is Bennu like this or like this classification but I think we're Finding that it's, it's a unique, you know, type of sample, which is awesome. Yeah, you know? yeah,
2: that's exactly yeah. what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, interesting science, regardless of, of how it turns out. But you know, yeah, having something that's different, unique—it's just a a fascinating, nice situation to have. Very good. Yeah,
0: and um, you, you mentioned we, we talked a little bit briefly about the different angles, right? So we got this quick look, right? You mentioned a couple of different extra ways and you have to forgive me because the science terms some go in one ear and I think you said something about isotopes, but like even just even just a different perspective that maybe we haven't even started on yet that maybe excites you about a different scientific angle that we can take. What's what's some of the work that you're doing to prepare the scientists for some of those observations?
1: Um so as I said, we our working group focuses on well they did elemental composition as well, but elements and isotopes on the bulk level, but also down to the individual components that are within the sample so that we mm. can understand, you know, it's, its bulk properties and putting that in play with, you know, other uh, asteroids, other meteorite samples that we have, but also individually, like what components came together to create this asteroid and what kind of parent body processes happened to create certain phases in it so um, and isotopes tell us a lot about the origins of these components and the origins of the asteroid itself so we made um, some isotopic measurements of part of the quick look samples so that's kind of giving us an initial idea of its bulk isotopic properties and elemental properties
2: and how it might relate to other things we know about different classes of meteorites Mm -hmm. and different kinds of asteroids. You know, Hmm. one, one problem we have in the meteoritics community is that we know our meteorites very well. And we have the spectroscopy to tell us what kind of different kinds of asteroids are out in the asteroid belt. All right. But we can't say this meteorite came from that kind of asteroid. That's still a very hard link to make. You know, Mm. and it's another reason these sample return missions like the ones we've US has done, what the Japanese have done have been so important, you know, because it finally allows us to say, aha, you know, here's an asteroid, we got the samples of it. It corresponds to this large group of meteorites that we find here on Earth, you know. And again, it helps tear apart this puzzle, which is the main asteroid belt, and then, you know, you have this vast mixture of different asteroids and you want to understand how they came to be. And, you know, what can we learn about those asteroids based on the samples that we already have in-house, you know? And mm. having these hard data points where you have a one-to-one correspondence to this kind of spectroscopic asteroid, and these are the samples, and this is what it looks like. These are its properties, and you have a direct link, and then you can take that and run with it, like I was talking about earlier. It's yeah really important.
0: I think, I think what I'm hearing is, and, and let me know if I'm mischaracterizing this, is... Science, based on the observations, based on what we're able to collect, can get us to a certain point. And then there comes a point where we need something else to help push our scientific understanding. And this is where something like an OSIRIS-REx sample return mission comes into play. Those pieces of the puzzle that are missing, that are gaps in our scientific knowledge, can be filled by investigating a sample like this so that we can just continue. Okay. We have an understanding. Now let's push forward to that next thing where what that, uh, our next limit of understanding until we get that next mission.
2: That's, I mean, it's the history here at NASA. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, you know, we had the, we had all these wonderful models about how the moon formed. Yeah. Right. The very first samples that came back had a piece of white rock called an orthosite, And, It led to the discovery, the idea that there was a magma ocean, that there was a crust floating on top of it on the moon and things, you know, it revolutionized lunar geology, all right? Um, You know, the identification that we have some meteorites here on Earth that came from Mars, you know? helped revolutionize what we think about mars how mars formed you know every one of these sample return missions you know you know i hate to throw the jargon out there but these these paradigm shifting things right you know it really does change our our perspective on things stardust Mm -hmm. you know the comet mission despite you know having micrograms of material really revolutionized our our ideas about comets how comets form what's in them you know and where that material originated from you know, Stardust showed us that there was this large-scale transport of dust in the early solar system from close to the sun out, you know, past the orbit of, you know, Saturn and Jupiter, you know. Um, and Bennu samples are going to do much the same for the meteoritics community, you know. Uh, we've already had a taste of that from the successful Japanese missions, you know, mm-hmm. that have done similar sorts of things. Um have revolutionized ideas that we had for 150 years on the nature of the most primitive kinds of meteorites that we have on Earth.
1: Yeah, we have all these different flavors of meteorites, but we don't know exactly which asteroid they came from, and we're trying to understand, you know, why are there all these different flavors, and what in their history created their characteristics that we're measuring. Um, But also, being a rubble pile asteroid, you know, how many different types of rock... How many flavors you know came together to create the Bennu asteroid. And so I think having the large sample and being able to look at various um, stones within the sample will help inform you know the diversity of material that can be housed in one body.
0: And it's so exciting! You talked about Lindsay the uh, the progression of excitement as the sample sizes get it bigger, from dust to you know these small small little rocks. Even even with just the tag sam, you said we exceeded our mission goals from sixty. Where we, I think we're looking at seventy grams already. That's really just the beginning, right? We still are working on getting the sample canister open. There's more. There can be more awesomeness inside of that.
2: Yeah, you know the design of the the tag sam had this sort of mylar flap um, that was. Uh, meant to allow material in, but to be just strong enough to keep material from falling out. Mm. And what happened is we were so, so successful that a large three centimeter size rock kind of got wedged and kept the mylar flap open. And that's why there was the excitement of closing up the tag Sam when we were in orbit because sample was falling out, right? Right. You know, and, and it was almost too successful. that It was, it was overstuffed with material. So it's like <laughs> the uh, the headquarters, uh, Tom Zubrucken made the comment that, you know, my decision, we're closing it up, bringing it home. Boom. Um, and so, yeah, the, the combination of the, when they took the material, they were talking about this progression of things, right? When looking at the tag sam, and we see these chunks of material on the Mylar flap, and the curators are scraping that off and putting it into containers very carefully they realize that that flap is pretty flexible and they said you know if we wanted to we could push that flap down and scoop out the stuff that's underneath it it's like do it yes, yes! <laughs> you know <laughs> full
1: speed ahead um,
2: and, But you know, calmly
1: and, so, and carefully y- like yeah, yeah yes, right yes, yes. yeah don't, and, don't
2: don't scare the curators yeah, right no the curators yeah. are, they're such Such wonderful, talented folks, and no, and then they scooped out seventy grams. And you know, our level one requirement for mission success is like you said, sixty grams. Mm -hmm. And we've now exceeded it. You know, we have more material than we expected. There's still material in there. Um, When materials exposed in space, it can come sometime get what they call cold welding. It's in vacuum, and there's like a bond that forms between the metal. Um, and so, yeah, there's two reluctant fasteners that are being proving difficult to open up with the current set of tools mm-hmm. um, but it's largely a function of the strength of the steel used to make the tools um so right now there's a activity going on in curation to fabricate tools of a stronger steel that will not be uh, we're not endanger. danger will not contaminate the samples in terms of, we have a very limited list of materials that can be used in these curation facilities to cut mm-hmm. down on any possibilities of contamination so very shortly we're going to have uh, the remainder of the sample out um, but in the meantime because we have exceeded the sort of requirements of the mission it is full speed ahead the the science team gets 25 percent of the sample up to right now the nominal thing is 15 grams of the 60. Mm-hmm. Uh, will be allocated to the science team for the next six months. Five months now. Is the NASA uh, science team? The overall the mission science team. Mission science mm-hmm. team. Okay. Um, the mission gets sort of exclusive rights to the sample for the first six months after return.
0: Makes sense. That's where the investment and, was. And yeah. at the
2: end of that six months time, the the curation staff will prepare a catalog and will document everything that's available. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that six month period. Other scientists from throughout the world can submit requests to NASA for samples to study, and there's there's a process in place for that kind of activity to happen. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the world gets to have fun with them, too. (laughs)
0: Are you part of the science team that's Working with those fifteen grams over the next couple of months. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It will be. yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. What's so some, that's the reward for a sixteen years' investment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, so then, uh, what's some of the I guess key highlights uh, to, that you're looking forward to for for the next six months? What what's some of the investigations? What's some of the science that you're just itching to 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 start?
1: Yeah. So for me, I'm I'm since I'm interested in pre-solar grains, and I you know I worked on Rigo samples as well, so I'm really interested to see. If they have kind of a different inventory of presolar materials, whether it be grains from other stars or in the form of organic matter. Um, and we find those by studying their isotopic compositions. We can't really find a presolar grain just by the chemistry we have to determine their isotopic compositions. And so we have specialized instrumentation that allows us to do that on a very fine scale. Um, so, yeah, I'm interested to see, and, and mainly the diversity of early solar system materials as well. Cause we're, we're finding like with, you know, Ryugu samples, meteorites, DARTA samples, there's, there's differences, you know, between those. And that does inform us about the transport of material early in our solar system. So I'm interested mm. to see, uh, what Bennu captured.
0: This is, this is interesting about multiple missions too. Is is not just understanding one perspective, but multiple. You talked about Ryugu, and you talked about Hayabusa. There's, there's. In, this is what's nice about having multiple missions. Is you can, not only can you take a scientific perspective of saying like, what's this from? It's just like, how does it compare to other things? Now, Lindsay, you, you're at the you're at the very small scale. Is your expertise? Yeah, uh, my,
2: my expertise is in electron microscopy. Okay, um, and. Um, yeah, we can basically image and analyze these materials down to atomic scales. Excellent. Um, and I'm interested in the, the minerals, the makeup of, of the samples. Mm. And you can use the the nature of the minerals that are there, the assemblage of minerals to tell you things like, How hot was it when these minerals formed? What was the pressure like? You know, what was the composition? Was it pure water? Was it salty water? You know. A lot of those things uh inform you about how the asteroid formed and evolved through time you know with and then Anne and i collaborate on the same samples we, we do something mm-hmm. we, we do something we call coordinated analysis mm-hmm. where i do all my kinds of analyses and then it goes into her instrument she makes isotopic measurements destroying the sample because it's the nature of the analysis. Well, you have to. Well, it goes back and forth, you know. Right, and we do it back and forth. But um, you know, it's a it's a technique where we sort of maximize the science out of a tiny amount of sample. You know, you you spent all this effort trying to get these little tiny samples into these instruments, um, and they're precious. You know, there's a finite supply of venue material on Earth. You Mm -hmm. know, it looks like it's a lot, but you know, um, and so we do these sort of coordinated measurements because I can tell you. Oh, it got hot, it got wet, these minerals formed around this temperature. What kinds of measurements and does you can say, yeah, but that happened probably three million years after the formation of the solar system. Mm-hmm. The water probably came from ice from the outer solar system. And you, cool. you, you tie this nice story together, you know, when you sort of combine these really key measurements yeah. into, into one one package.
1: Yeah, that kinda goes back to what I was saying about having all these you know, 200 plus scientists on the team Mm -hmm. is, you know, Lindsay and I coordinating our techniques already tells us more about a grain that could be just a micron or a couple nanometers, you know, in size and think about what we can learn if we had, you know, all these other techniques around the world that can be applied to it. But it's a matter of scale too. So some techniques require a lot of material. Some techniques look at it on you know centimeter millimeter size scale. But mm-hmm. and then we're looking at the fine scale. So putting those uh, pieces of information together will give us a more well rounded you know story.
2: And we've we've just sort of finished the early stages of an exercise trying to pick out the rocks that the science team wants to use. You know these eight rocks I was saying earlier, right? And we're looking at sort of surface characteristics. We're looking at different at this scale, at the centimeter scale. And then those will get torn apart down to finer and finer. There'll be this progression of analyses, you know, from bulk measurements of say, just the density and the porosity of a one centimeter square chunk. And then we'll cut that and polish it and analyze it in the electron microscopes and other instruments. It'll eventually make it into my microscope. It'll make it into her her mass spectrometer. And we will make those measurements down to that tiny scale and assess whether this is a uniform body, whether it's a heterogeneous body, are there chunks from other asteroids? We you know, it's a rubble pile. Uh, we suspect there's chunks from different epochs of the, you know, the, the protoplanetary disk. We'll find out, you know, it's going to keep us busy. You know, we're, we're funded for the next two years. Um, yeah, I, I know what I'm going to be doing.
1: <laughs> you know, when Lindsay said, you know, the quick look results weren't necessarily surprising, but I think once we delve deeper into the samples and more of it, we're going to be finding a lot of surprises.
0: That's absolutely fascinating. There's, I feel like I could talk to you guys forever, um, but just to, to bring it on home, right? There's there's so many interesting things already that we're looking at for Bennu and so much to come. Just Thinking about the work that you have over the next six six months as part of the science team, knowing that scientists are engaged from around the world and want to further explore this and and understanding of things that both of you guys are looking at, Um, and maybe we'll start with you, is just thinking about what are you looking forward to most for the future here? Now that we have this sample, now that we're working on it, we're doing the science, what excites you the
1: most? It's honestly, maybe not exactly what I'm going to discover, but what's going to be discovered down the road. Mm. Um, I mean, we all have our own interests and what we want to study in the sample, but I almost think part of the fun is when like the sample presents its discovery to you, its secrets to you in a way. You know, I had that experience looking at the Ryugu samples where um, I was poking around with my instrument, but I, I found something I didn't expect. And to me, that's that's really, really fun. That's what makes this job fun. And I think Beno is going to do the same. And I think down the road, you know, when there are new instruments and new scientists that they maybe will find something that refutes what I find, you know, in my samples. And I think that's going to be, you know. I'm excited for that.
0: That's Yeah, that's not, That's an exciting thing, right? It's yeah. Just, yes. it's, it's just progressing the scientific understanding. Absolutely fascinating. Lindsay, what are you excited
2: about? Well, I mean, it was the same sort of thing. Like The instrument I use, I mean, I, I do a lot of work on lunar samples still. Well, not anymore right now because I'm up to my neck in OREX samples. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but the instrument I used didn't exist during the Apollo program, mm. right? And thank God the curators did a nice job and kept samples pristine so that when I was here at JSC as a postdoc many moons ago. Um, I had pristine samples to work on. I did some very interesting science that's I'm very excited about. Um, that whole experience led to my involvement in this mission. It, the the contact pad things that I'm working on are, are fundamental to the kinds of my scientific interests. You know, I cannot wait. We're, cannot wait to tear into those samples, you know. Uh, there's a process called space weathering where, you know, materials sitting on the surface are exposed to radiation and impacts and it changes the surface, which is why we're interested in getting those sort of surface samples as opposed to something from 40 centimeters deep in Bennu, mm. you know? So that was why there's this two two tiered nature of the sampling uh, of OREX and tearing apart that material and it's fine grained. You have to go in down to it in you know, the atomic scale and we've tried to simulate this in the laboratory. I want to see if we did it right or not, you know, and now we have the real samples to say whether or not we were trying, you know, we're trying to learn and trying to anticipate what we were going to get back. So yeah, that, that's my bread and butter for the next six
0: months. (laughs) Well, you're certainly going to be busy. So I am, I'm truly grateful for both of you to be, Taking some time to sit down and chat with me. I know you have a lot ahead of you, but uh, to share all the exciting science that we just are skimming the surface of and then just knowing there's so much more to come, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to talk to both of you. So, Lindsay and Ann, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. Thank,
2: thank you. Very much. Much. It's been great. Houston,
1: go ahead. Stop of the space Roger, zero G and I feel the Shuttle
0: has
1: record like not because they are
0: easy but because they are hard everybody system welcome to space Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you learned something today. Quick update on this episode. We recorded this on November 7th, 2023, now recording this outro January 17th, 2024. Happy to report that the curation team successfully removed two fasteners from the sampler head using a specially fabricated tool. Check out the OSIRIS-REx blog for the latest on the curation steps and science of this historic mission. This is not the first time we've discussed OSIRIS-REx. You can listen to episode 20 27, The Search for Life, which we recorded before OREX reached Bennu, then listen to episode 285, which is Return of OREX Part 1, and we talk more about the spacecraft's arrival at Bennu and the initial prep, and episode 306 for a deep dive into the curation facility and prep for the sample's arrival check out nasa.gov for the latest on what's happening in the agency. You can find our full collection of episodes at nasa.gov podcasts, and also check out some of the other shows we have across the agency. On social media, we're on the Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, X, and Instagram. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea or question for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded November 7th, 2023. Thanks to Will Flado, Dane Turner, Abby Graff, Jane Jennings, Dominique Crespo, Nick Rachel Berry, and Aaron Morton. And of course, thanks again to Lindsay Keller and Ann Wynn for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.